I was in Strickland, Mississippi. If you're the visiting preacher in Strickland, Mississippi, you stick out. They know you're there. So I drive into this little place in Strickland, Mississippi early because I like to be real early when I speak unless I'm traveling with Jackie, and then she likes to be less early. But anyway, we, we got there, and uh, I walk in the building. These two old guys stand in the foyer. One of them says, hey, preacher. And I assume that was me because I'm the visitor. So I walked over there. He said, Charlie here made me this deal. He said, let's buy two hogs. And let's raise these hogs in my field or in my feedlot, and we'll raise them up and get them to the right weight, and we'll take them down to the market and sell them. I said, all right, I'm in. So they went down and bought them these two little hogs and started working with them and feeding them. He said, this morning, Charlie called me and said, one of those hogs got out on the highway and got hit by a truck. He said, I said, which hog? He said, your hog. <laughs> Elijah is smarter than the hog farmer. Because Elijah knows if you've got two altars working at the same time and one of them explodes into fire, everybody claims their God did it. Well, our God burnt your altar just to show you he's boss. So Elijah says, you go first. There'll be no mistake who lights what altar. And so they start. They prepare their oxen. They put it on the altar. And they begin to pray. They begin to cry. They begin to cut themselves. They begin to, to, to pierce themselves with lances Nothing happens. In one of the saddest verses in the Bible, the Bible says there was no voice. No one paid attention. There was no answer. I did a lesson one time, the saddest verses in the Bible. It's in my top three. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I will observe, kind of chase a rabbit here, that if you're in enough pain, you'll do anything to find relief. If you're in enough pain, you'll put your belief, you'll put your stock, you'll put your well-being into things that just won't help you. And we believe that taking a drink or swallowing a pill or taking a shot or visiting a, a website, anything that we do to change our moods become an addiction. And when you're in enough pain, you'll serve something that's not true. Uh, I didn't deer hunt when Jackie and I were dating. Uh, didn't really know any place to hunt in Arkansas, and we hunted small game at home, and after we moved to Huntsville, Alabama, I started kind of trying to deer hunt a little bit. Well, her folks live in, in Velvet Ridge, Arkansas, and in, in the old days in, in Alabama, you only had four or five days a year you could shoot anything walking. Otherwise, it had to have antlers, and being a novice deer hunter, I didn't see that many deer and didn't see that many deer with antlers, and so I'd wait for doe days. That's what we call them in Alabama. Just couldn't wait. Well, the doe days always fell right after Thanksgiving and right after Christmas. And guess what you got to do at the holidays? You got to go see the family. So Jackie would say, hey, we're going to need to go see my mom and dad. I said, why do we always have to run off to Arkansas when it's prime deer hunting? She said, well, you can hunt at my dad's place. Your dad doesn't have any property. Well, yes, he does. I didn't know that when I dated her. We might have got married sooner. I don't know. But her folks lived on 11 acres. But her grandmother had this section, and her aunt Bonnie had this section, and their nephews and nieces. And, and there's about a section of land out there in Velvet Ridge, Arkansas, that nobody hunts but me. And so, well, let's go to Arkansas then. And so we went out there to hunt, and I mean, for Christmas. And we went out there to, to see the family, and I wandered off out of the house one morning before daylight. And a lot of it had been row cropped. And they're letting it come back in trees, and there wasn't really any good trees to climb. But I found one good tree to climb and had a spot there I thought the deer would pass through. And I climbed up in this little tree on a tree climber, and my seat on my stand wouldn't level out. Well, I cut this little light on that I had, and there's a big fuzzy vine growing on that tree. 
And I thought, well, I'll fix you. I pulled this little saw out and sawed that vine. I don't know what kind of vine it was. I think it was leprosy vine. Because if you saw a vine like that off and that sawdust gets in your glove and mixes with your sweat, it'll light your hand on fire. And my hand became leprous. And from, from this knuckle up to about my elbow, I was just red and raw, and it, it angered, and it hurt, and it ached, and it stung, and it burned, and it itched. And we got back from Arkansas, and I took pills, and I put cream on it, and I took steroid shots, and that thing bothered me for months. And I was up on Nat Mountain with Jim Goins. We're on Putnam Mountain. And we were hunting a piece of property Jim owns. And we come out of the, the woods and sitting there at the truck eating a sandwich. And Jim said, well, let's go back and get in the woods. I said, Jim, I can't go back. I said, my hand is on fire. I've got to go to the house and, and, and do something about it. He said, you know, when I was growing up, we used to take a dirt dauber nest and grind it into powder and make a paste out of it and put it on diaper rash, cure the baby's diaper rash. He said, it might work on your hand. I said, I'm, I'm in. So we kicked around there, found this old barn, and knocked a dirt dauber nest down, and I put some on a little plate, and mixed some water with my canteen, made us a paste, and I coated my hand with it, and cut the tail of my T-shirt off, and wrapped it, put my glove on, and hunted until dark. Came out of the woods, sitting there at the back of the truck, getting our gear off. I'm unwrapping my thing. Jim said, how'd you pull this work? I said, well, I think it worked pretty good. He goes, I'm sure glad, because I just made that up. <laughs> He said, I didn't want to quit hunting, so I just, lying, sorry dog. And here I was in enough pain that I'd grind up a dirt dauber nest and put it on an infected arm. How many times if somebody said, if you owned that, you'd be happier. If you went with them, you'd be happier. If you quit going there, you'd be... And all of a sudden, we cry out in our crisis, and we serve something that's not real. Well, eventually, they, they quit. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah builds an altar. An Old Testament altar was an incredibly simple thing. God told Moses early on, when you build an altar to me, you do not touch the stone with an iron tool. Because if you do, you've corrupted it. Basically, you take 12 rocks out of the ground and you stack them up. We call them field stones. And an Old Testament altar was not anything elaborate. It was not anything fancy. It was simplistic. It was three rocks in a circle stacked four high. Or four rocks in a circle stacked three high. The emphasis was not on the altar. God that was being sacrificed to in this unadorned, simple, rudimentary, primitive altar. And he puts wood on it, he cuts the oxen up, digs a trench around the altar, and they begin to anoint it with water. There's a drought going on, and they're pouring water over this thing. He's anointing it with liquid gold because there's no water to be found, and yet they're wasting this water on this altar. The, the ditch around the altar will hold five seas of grain. It's about five quarts of water. And about the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah, and I always assume it was a quiet voice, without preamble, just simply says, God, please let these people know I'm your prophet. 
and that I've done these things because you've commanded me to, and please let them know that there's a God in Israel. And the Bible says while he was speaking, fire fell from heaven. And it burned up the sacrifice, and he burned up the wood, and, and, and burned the stones, and licked the dust up, and then licked the water out of the altar. And the people began to cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah says, you take these 450 prophets of Baal, you take them down to the brook Kishon, and you execute them because of the path they've led you on. Now, if you're the prophet of Baal, and your God's been absolutely silent for the better part of a day, this God answers by fire, you just lost your job and your life. This is the report Ahab brings to Jezebel. I don't know what you think a report like that should do for you. It doesn't do what I think it should have done for Jezebel. The God of Israel has burned an altar to cosmic dust in front of everybody. And you think she would repent. But when Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done, verse 2 of chapter 19, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose, and he ran for his life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. Elijah has had an ultimate victory. He's had the God of heaven personally answer his prayer by fire. He's also had him in the drought. And then Jezebel sends this note that says, I've asked the gods to intervene in my life, and if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow, I've asked them to help me kill you, and if I don't do it, then I want them to kill me. Now, if you just stood on Mount Carmel and had God answer your prayer, and you get this nasty gram from Jezebel, what would be your response? Dear Jezebel, meet me on Mount Carmel. Wear something cool. <laughs> you know, you stand here, I'll stand here, you ask your gods to kill me, I'll ask my gods to kill you. And we'll see how that works out for you. But instead, Elijah takes this message, this is what we call a precipitating event, a crisis moment. Something has happened. He's gotten a message from Jezebel. And he runs away. He's afraid. In an attempt to insulate himself, he isolates himself. And he says, it's enough. Let me die. Wow. This is a spiritual crisis. Now let's look at the components of the spiritual crisis. Number one... He allows Jezebel's words to have more power in his life than the Word of God. He lets what she says she's going to do be more powerful and more impactful than what God has already said. Sometimes we get into spiritual crisis because of the power we give other people. There are some people that we allow to have power in our lives and they shouldn't have that power. I don't have the ability to make you mad. I can say anything I want to say. You have to choose to be mad or not. Now think about it. Stay with me. 
if, and that's a big if, but if I could make you mad, I could make you happy. If I could make you fail, I could make you succeed. If I could make you leave the church, I could make you sit on the front pew every Sunday. If I could make you drink, I could keep you sober. If I could make you kill yourself, I could keep you alive. But oftentimes we get into spiritual crisis because we give other people more power in our lives. I, I speak on a forum sometimes with a, a jiu-jitsu club. They ask me to do sports psychology, and I'm not a sports psychologist, so they call it the mindset garage, and I make these little videos in my garage And the last one I posted said, if you're in a wrestling match or a grappling situation or a self-defense thing, you've got to establish distance between you and your opponent. And if you allow someone to control something that doesn't belong to them, they'll ruin your day. If you let me control your wrist or your elbow or your shoulder or your knee or your ankle, I'll mess you up. Well, if I let you control my mood or my success or my happiness or my competency, or my spirituality, if I let something that you say about me control me, you mess up my life. Other people's words, good words or bad words, only have the power you give them. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. If you don't believe the Word of God, it doesn't have any effect in your life. doesn't mean it's not powerful, but it doesn't have any effect on you. And if God's Word is limited by whether or not I believe it, <laughs> your words have to be limited by whether or not I believe it. And you don't have the ability to control my self-esteem or my success or my competency or my happiness. But Elijah allows the words of Jezebel to have more power in his life than he should. And this is not in the text, but go ahead and cover it. And sometimes we become responsible for things we can't control. I become responsible for your temper or your happiness or your success or your failure. When Lonnie Beth was little, well, a teenager, I found out that uh, teenage boys will come to your house if you have a teenage girl. It's a wonderful phenomenon. You can do anything you want to to a teenage boy at your house if he's interested in your daughter, and they'll come back for more. <laughs> it's awesome. I've got a little garage outside my house. Jackie calls it Lonnie's World. I've got my workshop. I've got a climbing wall. I've got a 10 by 10 wrestling mat where I practice. I've got a ping pong table. One afternoon after school, she's over here with this kid from the high school playing ping pong, basketball player. Skinny, tall kid. He turned sideways, stuck his tongue out. He looked like a zipper. I mean, there's no meat on this kid's bone. They're out there playing ping pong. I'm in the house just kind of vibrating. They come inside, and this kid goes, Hey, Mr. Jones, I notice you've got a wrestling mat in your garage. Would you like to wrestle? (laughs) Lazarus didn't get up that fast. I said, Yes, I'll go outside. Line best going, Oh, please, no, Dad. Don't. So I drag this kid outside. I said, I'm going to teach you one move. Take your right hand, put it on your left shoulder, and tap. He goes, what does that mean? I said, that means you can't breathe. And I taught him a chokehold called a baseball back grip. I put him to sleep in 17 seconds in my garage, laying out there drooling on his little dumb self. He came back the next night for supper. Not a smart kid at all. But you understand that if you're interested in somebody's daughter, 
Your dad can clean his gun or call you bad names or pick on your car, and you don't really care what he says. You're interested in her. If I can do anything or say anything, not say anything or not do anything that makes you leave Jesus, you and Jesus weren't that close in the first place. It's a determination that says your words don't control my relationship with my master. Your actions or lack of actions don't control my motivation to serve my God. And when I start using you as an excuse to not serve my God, number one, I've given what you're going to do or what you're going to say be way more powerful than what my God has already said and what my God has already done. That's Elijah's first problem is he's allowing people to have more power in his life than God. Second thing that happens is he goes out into the wilderness and after she says these things and he lets her words have more power and he lets what she says she's going to do be more powerful than what God has already demonstrated he's done. And look at the past. You've stood on Mount Carmel and watched an altar burn to the ground and yet you're going to be afraid of this woman because she's invoked the gods. And then when he gets out here in the wilderness, he says, it is enough. Please. Sometime in your personal study, compare the concept of it is enough and the phrase it is finished. Jesus on the cross says it is finished. The Apostle Paul says, I fought a good fight. I finished the course I've kept. The finished versus enough. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. Um, I, I've been a police chaplain with Huntsville SWAT. I'm not a police officer. I'm not a shooter. I'm not an operator. But I'm embedded with this team. And because I've been have access to this team for 25 years, I get invited to their stuff. I typically train with them on Tuesdays. I go and whatever they're doing for training. Yesterday, we were at the range and I got to shoot machine guns. It was really, really cool. And uh, if they go do something, well, I used to PT with them, physical training. I used to go run with them. If they did push-ups, I'd do push-ups. If they did pull-ups, I'd do pull-ups. If they went hiking on the mountain, I'd go hiking on the mountain. And I just exercised with these guys. I started with those guys when I was 29. About 10 years is the most a guy stays on the team. And so over the last 25 years, as I've gotten older, the team has gotten younger. And that's a difficult deal sometimes. So we pick up this young kid on our team named Brad Snipes. Brad a, was a 26-year-old inactive Marine. There's no such thing as a former Marine. It's just you're a Marine, you're inactive. I was educated on that. So Brad says, hey, you know, we do the same routine. We run, we do. I want to introduce you guys to a thing called CrossFit. You guys ever heard of CrossFit? CrossFit is an exercise form that is 1940s farming that you pay other people to make you do. It's brutal. They flip tractor tires and carry hogs. And I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And so Brad takes us to this CrossFit gym. And at the time, I was probably 46, just north of 45. And and I'm with these young, hard-charging guys. And so they start describing this thing, this CrossFit routine. And they named their routines. This one was entitled Fight Gone Bad. I've never been in a fight that went this bad, okay? It was this routine you do, and for every repetition you get, you get a point. Now, the CrossFit people are insane, because if you don't do it like they want you to do it, they won't count it. 
So if you're doing push-ups, the guy, you go one, two, three, 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 three. Dude, have you not seen Sesame Street 4 come? You know, but if you don't do it right, it's not going to happen. So the guy's explaining this torturous thing we're going to do. And he says, and the average person who's never done CrossFit should score this. But if you're a little better than average in pretty good shape, you should be able to score 150 points on this routine. And for whatever reason, I'm not a competitive person. But for whatever reason, the number 150 stuck in my head. And I'm going to get 150 or I'm going to die. And so I decide I'm going to keep up with these kids half my age and I'm going to do 150 points on this CrossFit thing. And so we do this thing. And I'm not great at math, but about a quarter of the way into it, I realized there's some things I'm really, really good at and some things I'm not good at. And I maxed out the stuff I was good at and started kind of sandbagging. I said, I'll be able to walk tomorrow. This will be awesome. And so I kind of, you know, I knew I had 150 in a bag. No problem. I did the thing. I'm laying on the floor doing what we call a pain angel. You just kind of lay there and flop. And Brad Snipes, this 26-year-old Marine, comes walking over me. And as he stepped over me, I said, hey, Brad, 157. What did you do? He never checked up. He said, all I could. And walked out the door. I picked a number, and so when I get to that number, I quit. When I get to that place, it's enough. Brad didn't even count. He did everything he could, as hard as he could, on every movement, on every repetition, on every revolution. And so when he walked out of the gym, he said, it's finished, not it's enough. When you get into spiritual crisis, you start thinking about all you have done and all you're going to do rather than, is it done? Anybody can walk away from anything and say, it's enough. It takes real dedication, real intestinal fortitude to say, it's finished. And I did everything that I could control. So Elijah lets this woman have this power over him, allows what she says she's going to do, to be more powerful than what God has already demonstrated he's able to do, then he gets to the place where he says, you know, it's enough. And in an attempt to insulate himself, I've got to get some distance, he goes to the wilderness, leaves his servant, and goes as far as he can go in a day. And then when he gets out there, what does he cry about? I'm alone. You ever notice when you get into spiritual crisis that I don't have friends at church anymore? How many times have you been here? Walk in at the last minute, leave at the last amen, and I'm not connected to the church anymore. We do things to ourselves and then complain about the results that we get. You know, I'm not happy at church. I've been to five different churches in the last five years. What's the common denominator there? At some point, you've got to decide to invest. And instead of insulating yourself to the point of isolation, you've got to reconnect. So Elijah's out here in the wilderness, and he's complaining. And listen to his speech. Listen listen what he says to God. Um, God asked him in verse 9, what are you doing here? Verse 10, and so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And Elijah's speech to God, justifying his behavior. And by the way, there are reasons that sound good, and then there's good sound reasoning. 
They're not friends. Notice in this speech to God how much of it is focused on other people and not of himself. Hey, I'm, I'm your man. I'm the only faithful guy you've got. They've done this and they've done that and they've done the other and they killed everybody and they're kill me. That's Elijah's speech. That's his reasoning for being in crisis. He's interpreting the world in a way that may or may not be accurate. In fact, when, when God confronts him, listen to what God says to him. Look at uh, verse 16. I'll go back to verse 15. And then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So get out of this isolation and go back and reconnect. And when you arrive there, anoint Hazel as king over Syria, and you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Sephat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. Now it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, Elijah's speech is, I'm the only guy left. They've forsaken your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets, and I'm going to be next. And God says, well, when you get back, when you decide to get out of the wilderness and go home to where you belong, when you get back there, you're going to anoint Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha. And what are Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha going to do? They're going to execute people. If they escape Hazel's sword, Jehu's going to kill them. If Jehu doesn't kill them, Elisha's going to kill them. I've got guys there that are going to enact my retribution and my judgment on them. Elijah, they're not going to be doing any killing. My people are going to be doing the executions. My people are going to be wrathing up the vengeance. My people are going to be handing out the wrath of God. So not only are, are they not killing, they're going to be killed, Jehu and Hazel and Elisha are. By the way, does Elijah die? It's not in this story, but not only does he not get killed, he doesn't even die. His perception is that they're going to kill me. The reality is, not only are you not going to get killed, you're not even going to die. You're going to go to heaven on a whirlwind. You see how that distorted thinking, what it feels like to me versus what it really is, and that gets us in trouble? Sometimes we have to probably process what we feel versus what we know. And your feelings are not always the best place to make a good decision. If you wait to be controlled by your feelings, and there's nothing wrong with human emotion, but sometimes we let them be in the driver's seat rather than us understanding what they really function. Your emotions are a request for action. They are information, not instruction. And God tells Elijah, you know, your interpretation of this is that they've done this and they've done that. And they're not going to do this and they're going to kill everybody and they're going to kill you. Number one, my people are going to be doing the killing. Not said here, but we will find out later. Number two, you're not even going to die. Not only are they not going to kill you, you're not even going to die. And number three, you think you're the Lone Ranger. There's 7,000 people. I'm by myself. There's 7,000 people. I'm all alone. There's 7,000 thousand people who've never bent their knees or puckered their lips at Baal. The old phrase to worship means to kiss toward. 
Either these people ain't even thought about worshiping Baal, much less bend a knee or pucker their lips. In Elijah's interpretation of life versus the reality is, is, is way, way different. When you get into crisis, and it, it may not be spiritual crisis, it may be physical, it may be psychological, it may be emotional. And when something happens to us and we go, God doesn't love me. Read Romans chapter 5. God's on record how much He loves you. God's on record how much He loves all of us. There's nothing that you or I can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing you or I can do to make God love us less. God's on record that He loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet powerless, God sent His Son for the ungodly. For God so loved the world that He gave God's already said, look what I'm willing to do for you on an eternity level. So if my finances crash or my business fails or my body shuts down or I get cancer or I lose a loved one, you can't look at God and go, I'm interpreting this as you don't love me. God said, no, 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 I'm on record how much I love you. You spend eternity with that loved one that you lose here. You spend eternity in an immortal celestial body when this thing wears out. Please don't get distracted by these temporary circumstances and and let that fool you. But Elijah gets to this place and it's hard and it's difficult and it's scary and he lets people have more power in his life than he lets God. And and so God says, look, your, your interpretation of this is just absolutely wrong. Hazel, Jehu, Nimshi are going to be executing people. You're not by yourself. There's 7,000 people who've never worshipped Baal. And you're not even going to get killed. You're not even going to die. How many times do we get into spiritual crisis simply because we let what the world says is going to go on be our marker for how the world is going? They said the world was flat. They said we're going to have another ice age. They said the planet's going to burn up. They said eggs are bad for you. They said sugar's bad for you. They said red meat's bad for you. They said salt's bad for you. They said she was going to be the next president. They ain't been right yet, people. Do you understand that? And when we hear people, well, you're not... And I try to be a non-political person. It does not matter who is in the Kremlin or who is in the White House. The God of the universe is in heaven. And what he has demonstrated his ability to do with his people is outstanding. But when we start talking about what they've done and they've not done, what they're going to do and what they're not going to do, and God says, please pay attention to what I've already done. And we focus on what God has already demonstrated he can do. Then these crises that throw us off of our center these crises that we worry about, these crises that frighten us, really should not be the crisis that makes us leave our God, to make us isolate ourselves and go out in the wilderness and say that we've quit. In fact, when, when God confronts Elijah, not only does he confront him with reality, he basically does a couple of things. Look at chapter 19, verse 5. And as he lay and he slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him, and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water, and he ate and he drank and he lay back down again. 
And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. To overcome a spiritual crisis, first of all, we've got to get out of the distorted thinking. We've got to quit letting our emotions separate from our intellect. When what you feel and what you know overlap, then you're making better choices. But then what you've got to do is you've got to get out of inactivity. God tells him to arise. You've got to get up and be active. If you wait until you feel like doing something, you'll never do it. When I quit getting out of breath, I'll start jogging again. Is that the way that works? When I get two inches on my arm and lose two inches on my waist, I'll go back to the gym. That's not the way that works. When I lose a little weight, I'll start eating better. That's not the way that works. But we often let our mood determine our actions, and you don't have to feel like doing it to do it. And I'm not talking about being hypocritical or duplicitous. I'm talking about being people of discipline. I know I need to do this, therefore I do it. And a lot of times we wait to feel like doing something and we don't. And in all actuality, starting to do something actually changes the way you feel about it. Really, really interesting. Reminding yourself that, you know, I did enjoy fellowshipping with the church. I did enjoy worshiping. I did enjoy shopping. I did enjoy hanging out with my grandkids. When you do things, your feeling about those things changes. But when you're in crisis, you're in that isolation mode, you're in that energy-saving mode, and so you become inactive. Inactivity breeds inactivity. Inactivity and energy breeds energy. And then the second thing he tells him to do, not only do you need to arise, not only do you need to get up, not only do you need to be busy, but you got to eat. You got to nourish yourself. You got to feed yourself. Obviously, we've got to spend time in God's Word. Please, when you study God's Word, study it conceptually. Don't be one of those people who says, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. Read the book of Matthew nine times this year. Read the book of Galatians every day for a month and find out what the big thought processes are. As preachers, we get so guilty of dissecting a text that we think we read the Bible word by word by word, and there's some really huge thought blocks that are in the Bible that sometimes we miss because we don't study it conceptually. Read the book of Galatians, and then at the end of your reading, see if you could write Paul back. It's a letter, by the way. And if you read something Paul has written, and you can write him back, Dear Paul, thank you for telling us about not following man-made rules to be complete in Christ. Dear Paul, thank you for teaching us that we can't teach gospel plus one, that Christ makes us sufficient. Paul, thank you for, if you can write Paul back after you've read one of his letters, you understand his letter. If you can't write him back, read it till you understand it. Arise, got to be active, and you got to feed yourself. I think you feed yourself with the scriptures. I think number two, you feed yourself with prayer. If you're not praying to God on a regular basis, you're not communicating with God as effectively as you can be. Uh, typically in our prayer lives, we ask God to take things away from us. Listen at our typical prayer. Sicknesses and sin, right? Take away, take away, take away. Jesus prayed all night. What did he pray about? He didn't have to pray about sin. He was sinless. He didn't have to pray about sicknesses. He could heal them. So what did Jesus pray all night about? Strength, maturity, wisdom, endurance, perseverance, the ability to reach the place where he says it is finished rather than it is enough. If you're spending your prayer life not asking God to in, give you things, and I'm not talking about material things, but give you the things that you need, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you're not taking your vitamins, 
you're not warding off this spiritual sickness. And also you need to feed yourself with fellowship. You need to feed yourself with connection. I think sometimes we get so isolated in our demographic or our age group that it's problematic. Make, make a vow if you don't feel connected to the church to connect. And connection, John Gottman and his marriage stuff talks about bids for affection. And bids for affection are little bitty things. Hey, would you like to go after services and get a milkshake? Could we meet early and let me interview you and find out about where you work and where you grew up? Get your church directory and just flip through it and decide, I'm going to go from the front to the back and contact everybody in the book this year. doesn't matter how old you are. I'm going to contact everybody in this book. I'm going to write. I'm going to call. I'm going to email. I'm going to tweet them. I'm going to instant message them. I'm going to text them. I'm going to send them an old-fashioned card and shock them when they actually get mail that's not a bill. I went to a church in Bernie, Missouri, and on Sunday night, they handed out the collection plate, and it was full of little cards. And as the plate went by, they pulled it out. And that was the person you called that week. That was the person you prayed for that week. That was the person you had dinner with that week. And a seven-year-old might call a 70-year-old. And a 60-year-old might call a young married couple. And their church wasn't divided by age groups. They were a body, not a group of different age groups. And, and, and God tells Elijah, you've got to get up, you've got to rise, you've got to eat. You've got you to fill yourself up with prayer, fill yourself up with the Word, and fill yourself up with, with activity and connecting with other people. And that's spiritual crisis in a nutshell. There's always a precipitating event. A lot of times that precipitating event is something that someone has done or not done, said or not said, and we give it a lot of undue power. We take that undue power in an attempt to protect ourselves. We insulate, and insulation leads to isolation. The isolation leads to inactivity, and in our inactive state, we have that cognitive distortion. We have that thought of, well, look what they're doing, look what they're not doing. And the reality of what you feel versus what you know is vastly, vastly different. Because what Elijah thought was true and what was actually accurate in his life was not true. Because Elijah thought this and God said, well, this is what it's really like. How many times have we sold our happiness, sold our contentment, sold our maturity? Because we said, this is the picture of the world. And God says, you're not looking at the world the way I look at the world. And how many times do we look at ourselves differently than God looks at us? Romans chapter 4 verse 17. And God, who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That means we've got to view ourselves and our strength and our weaknesses and our happiness and our sadness and our health and our illness. We've got to view ourselves... With God's eyes. God, who gives life to the dead, you got something that's dead and God can make it alive, and calls things that are not as though they were. The context of that verse is God takes a hundred year old man who has no children and calls him father of many nations. And you get into a spiritual crisis and you say, I'm weak and I'm lost and I'm a loser and I'm pathetic and I'm inadequate, and God says, Oh, no, you're not. Literally in Greek, that verse says, God calls things not being, being. God calls things that don't exist as if they already existed. And don't evaluate your life or your success by your productivity. Look at it according to your potential. Because God always sees what you're intended to be, 
not what you are. God walks through the Garden of Eden with Adam. You turn over a leaf and there's eggs. And Adam says, what are those? And God said, that's a butterfly. And they walk further and there's a, a caterpillar munching on a leaf. And Adam says, Father, what's that? Well, that's a butterfly. They walk a little further and there's a chrysalis hanging on a limb. And Adam says, well, what's that? Well, that's a butterfly. And then finally you see that beautiful, amazing monarch butterfly. And Adam says, well, what's that? That's a butterfly. Well, how can all those things be a butterfly? Because that's designed to become that. And that's designed to become that. And that's designed to become that. You're designed to be a saint. You're designed to be eternal. You're designed to be immortal. And quit looking at yourself through the world's eyes. And start looking at yourself through God's eyes. And it will cure any spiritual crisis that you have. Because God sees us according to potential, not productivity. God wants us to be like Him. And He's created a way for us to do it. As long as we don't let other people be our excuse for quitting.